Why do I get the sneaking suspicion that there is something really fun and cool and exciting happening somewhere else this weekend and I didn't get the invite? Is that... Wouldn't be the first time. Well, we've got our own fun, cool, exciting thing to do. We're coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. Finally, he says, with meaning not I'm sick of this and I'm, I'm finishing, but his last big point. Now, we might remember this is a uh, a book that has divided in the middle into two halves around a central command that you find in chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And again, chapters 1 to 3 describe that calling, that the riches, the privileges of belonging to God in Christ. And not simply as individuals, but as a body, as the church. And, and that means a people belonging in God's great plans for the whole cosmos and also belonging in the very life of Father, Son and Holy Spirit himself. And then chapters 4 to 6 are set about telling us how that belonging should lead to a newness in the way that we live our lives. And the metaphor that Paul has used consistently throughout to describe the growing, maturing Christian life is walking. And he employs this metaphor in several places. So in chapter 2, he said, uh, he contrasts the way we once walked, he said, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But now, he says, we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so as we go on through chapters 4 to 5, Paul has a list of commands. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but walk in love. We are to walk as children of light. We are to walk not as unwise, but as wise people. Well, this metaphor of walking is a Jewish metaphor straight out of the Old Testament. And it was used to describe um, the act of living as faithful people in a covenant relationship with the living God. And it's a very useful metaphor to, for describing the Christian life and capturing the essence of, of what we are about. Um, it's a useful word to, to, because, to begin with, it's a, a, a word that is an active word. It describes something we're doing. The fact that the life that God calls people into requires a response. None of us are, are mere bystanders. Uh, there's, there's no kind of lazy consumers in the kingdom of God. To walk is to be actively engaged in the process of receiving what God is giving to us as a gift. But at the same time, walking's not passive. Um, walking, sorry, while walking isn't passive, it's an active activity. That's a bit of redundancy, isn't it? Walking is active. But our walking, our walking, is not the thing that makes us. It's simply setting our feet upon the road that God's already laid out for us. The, the, the way that Paul puts it in Galatians is keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Well, this is a useful metaphor as well because it describes the Christian life then as a process. Now, the destination is important. Um, but the destination in front of us is certain and assured. We, we don't get there because we're, we've got great navigational skills. We, we're not all, you, you know, walking's not about becoming a skilled map reader. Our walking upon the way is the process of being in relationship with Jesus 
who is the way, you might remember. And so walk is finally a relational word from beginning to end. It, it's not a technique. We are walking in company with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're walking in company with one another. Well, now at the end of his letter, at this finally, Paul does something fairly typical of him in, in many of his letters. He abruptly changes his metaphor midstream. Right? He's been describing uh, the Christian life as a walk through chapters 4 to 6 at this point, and now all of a sudden he goes to a new metaphor, and that is standing. Four times in our passage, Paul employs this new idea. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. So here's a new metaphor for us. And standing is essentially here a defensive posture and the picture we're being given is that of a well-equipped soldier ready to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. So if the Christian life is a walk on the one hand, a, a process, a relational journey into Christ-like holiness, then Paul wants us to know on the other hand that it's also an inherently dangerous journey. There is peril along the way, that there is an enemy implacably opposed to the people of God and to God's successful work in the world, and that's the devil. Now, of course, this isn't the first time in the book of Ephesians that Paul has made mention of malign demonic powers at work behind the visible events of human history. Paul's, Paul's first century listeners were well acquainted with the supernatural world. In fact, they didn't know the modern distinction between the so-called natural world and the so-called supernatural world because in, in their view, the, the, the world of visible affairs was entirely infused with and affected by the invisible powers of the heavenly realms. And they actually lived with a deeply ingrained fear and, and worry about these powers. So the practice of religion and, and the practice of magic was just thoroughgoing. Everybody did it. You worshipped, you prayed, you invoked the gods, you practiced magic spells to, um, to sway the spiritual powers in order to get this unseen realm on your side, doing your bidding. And Ephesus itself was a great centre of both religion and magic in the ancient world. Paul's readers didn't need any lessons in the reality of this. But throughout Ephesians, he's been at, Paul, at, at pains to explain to them the supreme power of Christ the King, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be named. In other words, all these other gods, these other spiritual forces, these demons and angels, are no more than lesser creatures fallen angels. Uh, they don't have any ultimate authority. They must finally submit to God's command. They must finally do what they're told. So they don't need to be feared. Uh, nor do they need to be explained or explored or even admired. But all this cuts in another direction that's more pertinent to us, and that is 
they're also not to be disregarded. We, we can't ignore or deny the reality of the demonic. And the New Testament insists in many places that we need to be, remain alert. We, we need to have our eyes open to the fact that what's going on in front of us is more than just the culmination of social and economic and environmental forces, as though the things that we can see and explain with science is all that is going on in the universe. The New Testament keeps insisting that the world is deeply impacted by the working of a malign spiritual realm opposed to God's purpose. From the serpent in the garden, to Job's accuser, to Jesus' tempter in the wilderness, to the dragon and the beasts that we, we hear about in Revelation, the Bible presents us with an enemy. Not, of course, as sort of God's equal and opposite number, like the, you know, the leader of the opposition is the legitimate opposite to uh, the prime minister. We get, um, we get something less than that, a rebellious angel. Someone who's seeking to usurp power from God, to steal God's reputation, to pretend to have an authority they don't actually have. And so in Revelation 12, the picture we get is a dragon, defeated, cast down, unsuccessful in its attempts to destroy um, the woman and her child, probably um, Israel, Jesus. And in that position... This dragon then sets out uh, to pursue the woman's other offspring. That's us, the church. The Apostle John locates us in history as a people facing off against the dragon. What's important to realise in Ephesians is that humans were created to be image bearers, representatives of God the King. So that means rulers sharing both in the work and the character of God. Ephesians is all about how in Christ we are being transformed into image bearers for real. And Satan's still at work, just as he was in the garden, to, to ensure that God's work is destroyed, to ensure that image bearers are effaced, to ensure that we do not grow up into Christ. And Paul says to us, it's a mistake to forget it. In his satirical book, I don't know if you read this, The Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis, um, he's very tongue-in-cheek. He portrays a senior devil writing to instruct a junior devil about the methods for corrupting his patient. His patient is the human that he has been assigned to oversee. And it's essential, the senior devil insists, that the patient should remain entirely ignorant about the existence of the devils. He says it's much to their advantage that humans in this stage of history should both be thoroughgoing materialists and sceptics. But Paul wants us to be neither ignorant of the devil and his schemes, nor intimidated, nor even fascinated. So he writes, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The word for schemes here in Greek is methodeia, from which we get the word method. Now Paul's got no interest in telling us here how we should face off against the devil or, or the demonic because that's, that's God's business. 
our stand is against the devil's methodia, the devil's techniques, the devil's way of doing business that has inevitably infiltrated the world of human affairs. So if the way of maturing Christian holiness, if, if growing up to become an image bearer involves being relational, personal, communal, essentially loving, then we need to be on high alert as Christians when we find ourselves with, confronted with a way of getting on in the world or even a way of getting on in the church that turns out to be exploitative, impersonal, individualistic, self-interested. Anything which essentially reduces people from being potential image bearers to mere resources is essentially demonic. Big corporations have human resources, but God, you might notice, only has sons and daughters. Well, those of you who grew up in church and going to Sunday school, like me, will probably remember a lesson or two about the armour of God in Ephesians 6. Uh, it might have consisted of something like this, you know, get given two pieces of paper, on one piece of paper is a Roman legionary in his underpants and on the other are all the bits of costume that you are now going to colour in, cut out and glue onto the legionary um, to get him dressed up properly and while we do that we're all going to talk about each of these bits of armour and what they represent. I don't think we'll do that today, as fun as it might be. Um, I do want to pick two items out of this list to consider that will give us kind of a, a sense of the whole and what the whole is about. I want to talk about the shield and the sword. Now the shield, you'll be very pleased to know this, the shield is actually a turios, or what the Romans called in Latin a scutum, and not what the Romans called a clepeus. See, I knew, I knew you'd be pleased with that. Captain America carries a clepeus, that small round shield which in his hands becomes you know, a deadly frisbee, a snowboard, a battle axe, you, you name it. With a clepeus in hand, Captain America is a veritable one-man army. There's nothing he can't do. And I'm sorry to tell you, but a clepeus is not standard issue for the Christian. The Christian gets a scutum or a tureos. Tureos borrows its name from the Greek word for a door because it's a big rectangular uh, human-sized uh, shield, uh, probably curved around this way, so that it was capable of protecting a soldier from head to toe uh, and all around. And I grant you it's not a very sexy or exciting piece of kit. But it is a very effective piece of kit. Because when you get a rank of soldiers lined up with, these, with, a, with, with a turios each in hand and they um, lock the edge of their shields together, you form what's called a shield wall. And if you get the ranks behind to lock their shields overhead and uh, the soldiers down the side to lock their shields down the side, you get what the Romans called uh, a tortoise. This was a battle formation. It was very slow and very cumbersome, just like a tortoise, but it was very good on the battlefield, a very effective way of manoeuvring troops safely right into the heat of battle. It was even an effective way to break the enemy lines, and it could usually withstand a frontal assault. 
It's one of the things that made the Roman army so successful. So a turios, a very useful piece of equipment, when used in company with other soldiers. Now let's say something quickly about the sword. Now again, in Greek, this is the machaira, what the Romans called the gladius. It's the short sword. We can't be too pedantic about this. But this is more the kind of sword you give to a little hobbit than the great big long sword of Elendil that's carried by Aragorn. Um, this is not, I'm sorry, the big heroic thing that you, uh, you know, clear a path through your enemies with. This is the little sword you use when you get to close-up fighting. This is the sword you want when you're in the thick of it. Probably the most important detail to know about all this armour, the bit we often glide over, is that it is the armour of God. This is God's armour. And Paul actually gets his image here, all these six items, not from looking at the Roman legionaries of his day, but he actually gets it all from the prophet Isaiah. Every one of these items is drawn from Isaiah's oracles. So in Isaiah 59, we find the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, exactly as Paul has them. And in Isaiah 59, we're being given a picture of God putting on this war gear. God dressing himself up in order to go out and make war. He's, he's on the war path to establish his kingdom of justice and righteousness. God is the hero in this picture. And in fact, his people, Israel, are the very problem. His own people have failed to do what they ought to have done. They have allowed oppression and evil to thrive in their midst. And now God must take up and do for them and through them what they couldn't do themselves. In Isaiah 11, we meet Messiah buckling on the belt of truth and righteousness. And it turns out he too is a warrior. He's on the warpath, slaying his enemies, we read, with the rod of his mouth, the breath of his lips. In Isaiah 49, we're told he has a mouth like a sharpened sword. Here is Paul's sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And feet shod with good news, feet bearing the gospel of peace. That's straight out of Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, proclaiming peace. All these six items in Ephesians 6, this is God's kit. This is, this is the war gear of Messiah. So the picture we've been given in Ephesians 6 is, is not the Christian getting dressed up in preparation to do daring heroic deeds, but Christians being clothed in the armaments of Christ. This is us being stood firm in the deeds and the accomplishments of Jesus. This is the defensive posture of the church, standing firm in the face of an enemy in the protective gear of its Lord who has already triumphed over the, over the devil, who's already won the battle. Because the whole point, Paul says at the beginning, is to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And when you place them in the context of the whole Ephesian letter, Every piece of this armour assumes a significance from some aspect of God's work in Christ that we've already come across. 
So if we talk about buckling on the belt of truth, well, what exactly are we putting on there? In Ephesians 4.21, Paul tells us that we were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Truth is synonymous with Jesus himself. To put on the belt of truth is to wrap yourself in Christ. What about righteousness? Well, it's not a, it's not a common word in the Ephesian letter, but when it is used, it refer, refers to God's character and therefore the character that the Christian is to grow up into, the, the new self, Paul says, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, becoming image bearers, in other words. And what about these shoes? Well, this is very badly translated by the NRSV, if you happen to read that, which says this, As for shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. That's a bad translation. This is not a command to go and do something. This is the image of a well-shod soldier, prepared and ready to take their stand with their feet firmly planted in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it was Christ who preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And, and that phrase, preached peace, is literally this phrase here, announce the good news of peace, announce the gospel of peace. The well-shod Christian has their feet stood in the peace that Jesus has won. The shield of faith, that finds its object in Jesus too. Because faith is never an abstract thing. Faith is always faith in Christ. Never less than that. The helmet of salvation. Again, in Ephesians, who is the saviour? Christ is the saviour. The gift of his death and resurrection for us is our salvation. And the sword, not just any sword, the sword of the spirit. Christ's gift to his people. He breathed on his disciples in John 20 and said... Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the, the Holy Spirit of chapter 2 of Acts. This is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who Paul says in Ephesians 1, is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. None of the items in this list is a task to do or a technique for getting something done. Eugene Peterson comments on this and says, in contrast to the wiles of the devil, none of these six items is a way to do anything. They do not add up to a plan or a program. None of them can be done on our own, autonomously. They are gifts, and they can be maintained as gifts only in the acts of giving. They can exist only by becoming incarnate in human beings with other human beings in acts of living, being. The armour of God is a description of the people of God in Christ. The armour of God is a description of the people of God in Christ. Now, in Christ, that's a phrase we hear some 20 times through Ephesians. It's, it's Paul's constant refrain to describe both where we are at as Christians and how it is that God has accomplished what he has done for us. So this armour is not really about setting off to war against the devil in Jesus' name. This is not prep for some holy crusade. This armour is about being alert and ready 
being solid and unmoved, being fully equipped in Jesus. And so here is where the metaphor of standing is just like the metaphor of walking. If walking is about a deliberate setting of your foot in the right way, the prepared way, in Jesus himself, the way, the truth and the life, then standing is about holding the line, being ready for the onslaught so that when trouble comes, we're not caught unawares and simply swept away. Standing is about standing fast in Christ. And that brings us to the last verses, 18 to 20. Well, up to this point, Paul's given us a succession of commands. You know, be strong, uh, put on or clothe yourself with the, uh, the armour of God, take up the armour, stand firm, take and grasp the helmet and the sword. We get to verse 18, we come to another one of those moments in Paul's letter where he doesn't actually start a new sentence or a new paragraph. Because the two commands here, pray and be alert, or literally stay awake, be on guard, they don't stand on their own grammatically as a new set of commands. They follow putting on, taking up, grasping the armour of God, taking your stand. In other words, prayer and wakefulness are the very way we keep ourselves in Christ. They are the two ways we participate in these six gifts that describe what God the Father is doing in us and for us through God the Son and God the Spirit. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of his trial and execution, what did Jesus give his closest disciples to do? He took Peter, James and John aside from the others when he went off to pray and he said to them, stay here and keep watch with me. He goes only a short distance to pray. And of course, when he comes back to the disciples the first time, he finds them fast asleep and, and he sorrowfully asks them, are you not able for one hour to stay awake with me? Stay awake and pray so that you do not come into temptation. Now, one of those slumbering disciples, of course, is Peter, who will later himself write to the church, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Be alert, stay awake, stand firm. Stay awake and pray so that you do not come into temptation. Prayer has been woven into the very fabric of the letter of Ephesians. We, we started with this grand Jewish prayer of praise. Um, in the, the first half of this letter began uh, and, and ended with Paul praying for the Ephesians. And now the letter comes to a conclusion by him instructing them to pray for him. Pray in the Spirit, verse 18, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me. Tychicus will tell you everything so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. 
In Paul's mind, prayer is not kind of some fancy accompaniment to theology or action. Prayer is an essential component of the life and the work of the church. You know, in most of his letters, his own work, his own writing is saturated with prayer for the specific people, the specific congregations that he's been involved in. And he frequently asks them to participate in his work by praying for him. This is not what the Ephesians were used to. Prayer is not about magic, trying to get God to come on board and, and do stuff for you. Prayer is like walking. It's like standing. Prayer is an active participation in what God is already doing. Prayer is the way we stay oriented to the ways and means of God in Christ. Prayer is what finally turns us out of ourselves and into the matters that most concern God. Prayer is attentive listening to God. So Paul's conclusion brings us full circle right back to where he started in chapter 1. Um, in that great prayer of praise, he immersed us in the rich love that God has for us expressed in Christ Jesus. And in fact, he's never left that subject. It, it's not as though in the first half of the letter he's kind of preached grace and great theology and the wonderful things we have as God's people and then suddenly changed gear and started to talk about practical matters. Now we're going to do practical stuff, worship and witness, ethics, sexuality, race relationships, work. He has all the way through preached Jesus in whom God has integrated all of those things. So that in this new identity we have as, as people in Christ, in this, in this new belonging, all of those things are brought into proper relation. All of them reach their full meaning and purpose. And so the Christian life is an expression of living in Christ, staying fully in this grace, standing firm in freedom, keeping our feet rooted in joy. So to walk, to stand, to pray, to be awake, different ways of doing the same thing, of a life rooted constantly in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how I pray that you would, you would rise upon us like the sun rises every morning, that we would see all things by light of your person. We would understand ourselves inside and out as people redeemed in you, not just redeemed for a future moment, but redeemed to walk with you now, a people on the road with you, a people in process of growing up into you. I pray you'd teach us how to live in the world that we are in, taking a stand, recognising the de devil's schemes, being alert to them, recognising when we see something that is essentially aiming to efface the value of human beings, drag them away from God's purpose that they should grow up into mature Christ-likeness, into the image. Lord, grow and shape this church, grow and shape us as a people, grown up into your image. Have mercy on us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.